Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and it's my privilege to be your host as we work together through sermons that were preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the eminent Victorian pastor, preacher, and evangelist who prodigiously gifted doesn't draw our attention so much because of who he is as because of how the Lord God equipped, enabled, and assisted him in preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Today's sermon is from 3 John, verse 4, the third letter of John, verse 4, and it's called The Parents and Pastor's Joy, and it's an example of uh, Spurgeon's sweet humanity, patterned after Christ, an example of his pastoral preaching, uh, and it's a very straightforward sermon, launching very quickly into it by comparing or connecting, perhaps is better, the uh, the text itself, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth, uh, comparing then and connecting the spiritual father and the physical father. So he's going to start off with that uh, physical relationship and say we want to use these words as the proper expression of Christian parents, and then we're going to take them back as a truthful utterance for all real pastors, that we have no greater joy than to hear that our children walk in truth. So, very simple, two elements, the physical expression, the spiritual expression, the the father of children, humanly speaking, and the father of children, supernaturally speaking, the man who's had the privilege of seeing somebody come to new life under his ministry. First, then, he says, one of the parents' highest joys is his children's walking in truth. He has no greater joy. And he emphasizes immediately that this is a joy that is peculiar to or distinctive for Christian fathers and mothers. No parents can say from their hearts, we have no greater joy than to hear that our children walk in truth unless they are themselves walking in truth. No wolf prays for its offspring to become a sheep. The ungodly man sets small store, has little regard for the godliness of his children, since he thinks nothing of it for himself. And so Spurgeon says, the distinctly Christian appetite is for the salvation of one's child. And it's very grievous then, he points out, to see how some professedly Christian parents are satisfied so long as their children display cleverness in learning or sharpness in business, although they show no signs of a renewed nature. The concern then of the truly Christian parent is not only the natural gifts of their children. Uh, They raise their eyes higher than their worldly attainments. Their great concern is that they should be true Christians. And so says Spurgeon that when a man's heart is really right with God and he himself has been saved from the wrath to come and is living in the light of his heavenly father's countenance, it is certain that he is anxious about his children's souls, prizes their immortal natures and feels that nothing could give him greater joy than to hear that his children walk in truth. And that's then one way of us asking, how are things going with our souls? What is our concern for our children? I remember a friend of mine, 
several years ago, speaking of his own experience, saying that he'd often prayed that his his son, and this is the, the lad he was thinking of in particular at this time, he'd often prayed that his son would grow up to be uh, a real man and to, uh, to show his, his qualities in that respect. But he said, I, I'm not sure I've prayed as much and as earnestly that he would be a truly Christian man. And it was something of a, a confession that the great concern that a Christian father should have for his sons and his daughters is that they would grow up to follow Jesus Christ. Then he goes on, Spurgeon now, to say that the joy mentioned in the text is special in its object. The expression is a thoughtful one. He says, we want our children to learn the truth. That's certainly true, to to understand the gospel, to be well-rooted and grounded in its doctrines but we want them also to feel the truth. Parent, he asks, was not your heart glad when you first saw the tear of repentance in the girl's eye? Did it not rejoice you when your son could say, Father, I trust I have believed and am saved by the grace of God? Yes, it's a greater joy that they should feel the power of truth than that they should know the letter of it. He's saying your children can understand the the, the truth in the and merely intellectual sense. They could be able to uh, parrot back certain true things, but we want them to feel the truth. Such a joy, I hope you will none of you be content to forego. It should be the holy ambition of every parent that all his house should be renewed of the Holy Ghost. And so it's a great joy when our children avow their sense of the truth, knowing and feeling it, they at last have the courage to say, we would join with the people of God for we trust we belong to them. Oh, he says, happy as a marriage day is that day in which the parent sees his child surrendered to the people of God, having first given his heart to the Christ of God. The baptism of our believing children is always a joyous occasion to us, and so it ought to be. But he says, remember, that's not the precise nature of this declaration. While there's joy in our children learning the truth and feeling the truth and having a sense of the truth, the prayer or the declaration is, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children walk in truth. That profession is substantial and continual. This is the point then, practical religion, an actual exemplification of the power of the gospel upon their lives, proving that the teaching was well received, that the feeling was not mere excitement, that the profession was no falsehood or mistake, but was all done in truth. What bliss it would be to us to see our sons grow up and with integrity, prudence, uprightness and grace walk in truth and to behold our daughters springing up in all their comeliness, lovely with the adornment of a meek and quiet spirit, becoming in their homes while with us or in the new homes which speedily grow up around them, patterns of everything that is tender, gracious and kind and true. I have no greater joy than this, says John, and truly all of you to whom such a joy as this has been allotted can say, Amen, Amen, it is even so. So this joy has a a special possessor, the Christian parent, a special object, the walking in truth, but it's also a helpful joy in which we can indulge to the full without the slightest fear. We rejoice in the work of the Spirit of God, a work which will abide when this world shall have passed away. We love to see our children converted because we love God. 
Out of love to him, through his grace, we gave ourselves to him, and now in after years, the same love prompts us to present our children. So the hand which has held the standard aloft in the midst of the fury of war is at last palsied in death. Happy is that standard-bearer who with expiring eye can see his own son springing forward to grasp that staff and keep the banner still floating above the host, passing down the, uh, the banner of faith in Christ from generation to generation. Happy Abraham, followed by his Isaac. Happy David, succeeded by his Solomon. Happy Lois, having Eunice for a daughter, and Eunice happy to have Timothy for a son. Where then are our successors, asked the preacher? From whence shall come these succeeding voices and whence these needed shoulders of strength? We believe that they will come from amongst our children and if God grant it shall be so, we shall need no greater joy. Then this is peculiarly a great joy because Christian parents have made this a subject of importunate prayer or insistent and persistent prayer. That which comes to us by the gate of prayer comes into the house with music and dancing. If you have asked for it with tears, you will receive it with smiles. The joy of an answer to prayer is very much in proportion to the wrestling which went with the prayer. If you have felt sometimes as though your heart would break for your offspring unless they were soon converted to God, then, I will tell you, when they are converted, you will feel as though your heart would break the other way, out of joy to think that they have been saved. Wouldn't that be wonderful if, if the, the, the broken-heartedness of the pleading parent for the salvation of their children were then matched or even exceeded by the joy of a heart that sees such a prayer answered. Then furthermore, this joy is quickening in its effect. It's enlivening, it's energizing, it lifts us up. Spurgeon says, have you, have you prayed then in this way? Spurgeon says then, have you seen all of your children converted? If you have, how holy and how heavenly ought your families to be? But have some of your children been converted? Then let what the Lord has done for some encourage you concerning the rest. When you're on your knees in prayer, say to your heavenly Father, Lord, you've heard me for a part of my house. I beseech you, therefore, to look in favour upon it all, for I cannot bear that any of my dear children should choose to remain your enemies and pursue the road which leads to hell. You have made me very glad with the full belief that a portion of my dear ones walk in the truth, but I am sad because I can see from the conduct of others that they have not yet been changed in heart, and therefore do not keep your statutes. Lord, let my whole household eat of the paschal lamb, the Passover lamb, and with me come out of Egypt through your grace. I'm sure, beloved, he says, this is how you feel, for every true Christian longs to see all his children the called of the Lord. He reminds us that as a father himself, the Lord yearns over his erring children and he can never be grieved with us if we do the same. Nowhere do you meet with rebukes of natural parental love unless it unwisely winks at sin. Even David's bitter lamentation, O Absalom, my son, my son, would God I had died for you, O Absalom, my son, my son, is not censured by the Lord. Neither do we find him rebuking Abraham for saying, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So, says Spurgeon, if that's the case, let us not be afraid at any time when pleading for the souls of our children. 
Be importunate, be eager, be earnest. Not for the child's life, that you must leave with God. Not for the child's health, that also you may make a secondary matter, but for the child's soul. He goes on again that this joy is very solemn in its surroundings. Children, said one, are doubtful blessings, and he was near the truth. Blessings they are, and they can be made by God the choicest of blessings. But if they shall grow up to be dissolute, impure, ungodly, they will make our hearts ache. So no cross is so heavy to carry as a living cross. Next to a woman bound to an ungodly husband, or a man unequally yoked with a graceless wife, Spurgeon says, I pity the father whose children are not walking in the truth, who yet is himself an earnest Christian. He tells us he's sadly marked the difference when he's gone to the funeral of different young people. He's been met by the mother who told him some sweet story about the girl and what she did in life and what she said in death. And we've talked together, he says, before we've gone to the grave with a subdued sorrow which was near akin to joy, and I have not known whether to condole or to congratulate. But in other cases, when I have entered the house, my mouth has been closed. I have asked a few questions, and very little has been communicated to me. I have scarcely dared to touch upon the matter. By and by the father has whispered to me, The worst of all is, sir, we had no evidence of conversion. We would have gladly parted with the dear one if we might have had some token for good. It breaks my wife's heart, sir. Comfort her if you can. I felt that I was a poor comforter, for to sorrow without hope is to sorrow indeed. I pray it may never be the lot of any one of us to weep over our grown-up sons and daughters dead and twice dead. Better were it that they had never been born, better that they had perished like untimely fruit, than that they should live to dishonour their father's God and their mother's saviour, and then should die to receive, depart you cursed, from those very lips to which, which to their parents will say, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Proportionate then to the greatness of the joy before us is the terror of the contrast. I pray devoutly that such an overwhelming calamity may never happen to anyone connected with any of our families. Spurgeon knows to how to bring these things close to home, to, to make us view this joy even in the light of eternity. This then is the more uh, natural sense, not so much the natural sense of the text, but the, the sense of the text in the natural setting, the uh, physical father with his child, the, the, the physical relationship expressed. But, says Spurgeon, you may also view this text as specifying the pastor's greatest reward. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. The minister who is sent of God, he says, has spiritual children. They are as much his children as if they had been literally born in his house, for to their immortal nature he stands under God in the relationship of sire. So no minister ought to be at rest unless he sees that his ministry does bring forth fruit, and men and women are born unto God by the preaching of the word. To this end we are sent to you, not to help you to spend your Sundays respectably, nor to quiet your consciences by conducting worship on your behalf. No, sirs, ministers are sent into the world for a higher purpose, and if your souls are not saved, we have laboured in vain as far as you are concerned. 
the the spiritual man of God, the the true Christian pastor, labors to see children born of his labor, desires to see salvation come to those to whom he speaks. And the the children of the preacher, in the spiritual sense then, are often known to him. There's a a connection, there's a, a personal understanding. You know how refreshing to the preacher is information that he has won a soul for Jesus as cold water to a thirsty soul in a parching desert is such good news to us. I don't think there's any joy that corresponds to the joy of knowing that under God, your ministry has been blessed to salvation. It's a joy the devil loves to prevent and loves to dent as much as he is able. But that joy is is almost incomparable. You cannot help preaching when you know that saving results follow. If God's Holy Spirit has blessed our word to you, do not refrain from acknowledging the blessing, says Spurgeon. Put on Christ publicly in baptism, according to his command. Unite yourself with his church and commune with the people among whom you have been born unto God. He goes on to say that it seems from our text that John was in the habit of hearing about his spiritual children, that the communication was made. If you've made a profession of your faith, says Spurgeon, people will talk about you and the pastors who've preached will hear about it. He says this is no spy system practiced among the members of the church, and yet somehow or other in this large church of 4,500 members, it very rarely happens that a gross act of inconsistency is long concealed, because people will speak for good or for ill. Birds of the air tell the matter. The eagle-eyed world even acts as policemen for the church, and with no good intent becomes a watchdog over the sheep, barking furiously as soon as one goes astray. I assure you, I have no greater joy than when I hear that the members of the church are walking in truth. When, for instance, a Christian young man dies and his master writes to me saying, Have you got another member in your church like so-and-so? I never had such a servant before. I deplore his loss and only wish I might find another of equally excellent character. But how different is our feeling when we hear it said, as we do sometimes, I would sooner live with an ungodly man than with a professor of religion, for these professing Christians are a deal worse tempered and more cantankerous than mere worldly people. Shame, shame on anybody who makes the world justly bring up so evil a report. Our joy is that there are others against whom no accusation can justly be brought. So we might ask, if people are speaking of you to your elders, what report are they bringing? not just within the church, but without it. Is is your conduct a credit to the congregation to which you belong and the minister under whose instruction you are seeking to serve? Spurgeon goes on again. You notice that the apostle speaks of their walk. The world couldn't really report their private prayers and inward emotions. It can only speak of what it sees and understands. And so the issue here is public character and deportment. Be careful, be careful of your private lives, my brothers, and I believe your public lives will be sure to be right. But remember that it is upon your public life that the verdict of the world will very much depend. Therefore watch every step, action and word, lest you err in any measure from the truth. What is it then to walk in truth? It's not walking 
in the truth, says Spurgeon, or else some would suppose it meant that John was overjoyed because they were sound in doctrine and wasn't bothered about anything else. Now, it is a great joy to see converts standing fast in the truth, holding fast to the grand old doctrines of grace. But to walk in truth means something more. It means action in consistency with truth. It means conduct in accordance with conviction. It means even more, says Spurgeon. It means being real. Alas, that one should have to say it, but very much of the religiousness of this present age is nothing more than playing at religion. Why, look at the Christian year of the ritualistic party in our national church. Look at it and tell me what it is. It's a kind of practical charade of which a sort of passion play is one act. The life of Christ is supposed to be acted over again and we're asked to sing carols as if Jesus were just born, eat salt fish because he's fasting, carry palms because he's riding through Jerusalem and actually to hear a bell toll his funeral knell as if he were dying. One day he's born and another day he's circumcised so that the year is spent in a solemn make-believe for none of these things are happening but the Lord Jesus sits in heaven indignant thus to be made a play of. Have nothing to do with such things. Leave the shadows and pursue the substance. Worship Christ as he is, and then you will regard him as the same yesterday, today, and forever. So don't play act the life of Christ by means of the church calendar. Don't go through the world like respectable shades, haunting the tomb of a dead Christ, but be alive with the life of God, alive from head to foot to divine realities, so you will walk in truth. And then says Spurgeon, when a preacher sees men thus walk in truth, may he make it his great joy. Why should he do this? Because this is the end or purpose of our ministry. This is what we aim at. Notice what he says. We don't live to convert people to this sect or that, but to holy living before God and honest dealing with men. And there's no greater joy for a true minister than this, because this is the design of the gospel itself. Christ loved his church and gave himself for it, that he may present it to himself a perfect church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So a holy people, those who walk in truth, are the reward of the Redeemer's passion. Well may they be the joy of those friends of the bridegroom who stand and rejoice greatly because the bridegroom's joy is fulfilled. So the holiness of Christians becomes the great means of spreading the gospel. They preach best for Christ, who preach at the fireside, who preach in the shop, whose lives are sermons, who are themselves priests unto God, whose garments are vestments, and whose ordinary meals are sacraments. Give us, says Spurgeon, a holy, consecrated people, and we will win, for these are the omnipotent legions with which the world shall be conquered to Christ. We joy in a holy people because they bring glory to God, Mere professors do not do so. Inconsistent professors dishonour God, of whom I tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. But a people walking in truth crown the head of Jesus. Why? Because they compel even blasphemers to hold their tongues, for when they see these holy men and women, they cannot say anything against the gospel which has produced such characters. So, beloved, if you love your pastor, if you love the Bible, if you love the gospel, if you love Christ, if you love God, be a holy people. 
you who profess to be saved, be true, be watchful. If you would not grieve us, if you would not dishonor the gospel, if you would not crucify Christ afresh and put him to an open shame, walk as Christ would have you walk. Abhor that which is evil, cleave or cling to that which is good. Be in your speech and in your temper, in your business transactions with your fellow men and in your communications in the family circle, men approved of God, such as you will wish to have been when your Lord shall come, for he is at the door and blessed are those servants who are ready for his coming. This then is Spurgeon's great thrust in this sermon. He wants us to feel the joy as parents of children in the physical relationship, seeing our own sons and daughters come to Christ for themselves and walk in truth. And he wants the the joy of pastors seeing those who've been born again from above, those who've been birthed under their care, those who are the, the product of their own spiritual contractions in prayer and in preaching, to be walking in truth, walking in the truth of the gospel, producing a life that properly reflects the things that they have professed. Spurgeon says that's the joy of a true Christian. That's the joy of a Christian parent. That's the joy of a Christian pastor. And it rests on that distinctive holiness that flows out of union with Jesus Christ. So says Spurgeon, if that's not true of you, please don't make a profession of faith. If you've made such a profession but have dishonoured it, go back to Christ, humbling yourself in the sight of God, and, and Christ still will willingly receive you, even though you've done him such despite. If you've messed up, then there is still a fountain open for sin and for uncleanness. Spurgeon preaches this sermon toward the end of the year and he says, now then is a time for review. Now is the time to think of what's taken place over the course of the last 12 months. Now is the time to to ask what has been worked out by the will of the flesh so that as you come to the end of the year, you might with penitence bring your sins before God, plead again for his mercies, be lifted up and refreshed and restored and live in newness of life in the new year enjoying together the sweet privilege of hearing that our children walk in truth while we ourselves through grace are walking in it too and the church is built up and multiplied by the spirit of truth. My friends, I think any of us need to ask if we're parents, are our, are our appetites for the salvation of our children and do we properly rejoice when one and then another is seen walking in that truth and when the whole family is then consecrated to God. And if we're pastors, is this our longing? And if we're the people of God, are we bringing forth that holiness that brings deep, deep joy to those who watch out for our souls? May God help us to be such men and women. And we don't need to wait for the end of the year to make a review of our lives. Now would be just as good a time as any to ask, have I truly brought joy to my God? Am I bringing joy to my father and my mother if they're Christians? Am I bringing joy to my pastor? Is he, uh, are they delighted and full of happiness of soul? Because I as their child, either physically or spiritually, am walking in the truth. May God help us to labour in this way. 
I trust that this has been of some benefit. I trust that you'll join us again next week if the Lord spares us all to consider Sermon 1154. As you probably know, each week we work our way through a sermon day by day. So next week, Sermon 1151 through to 1157, each week a featured sermon for this podcast. And next week, the title is Daniel Facing the Lion's Den, Sermon 1154. Do join us then. In the meantime, please leave a a review or a rating on whatever app you're you're listening on. Uh, apparently that helps us a great deal. Thanks as ever to Media Gratii for uh, producing and distributing this podcast. And may God bless us and make us to walk in his truth until we have an opportunity to gather again under his word. Take care and God bless. <laughs>